Uh, as you remain standing for the reading of God's word, it is our privilege and honor to have Fred Klett with us with Chaim Ministries, one of the missionaries that we support, and he will be bringing God's word to us this morning. So, Fred, thank you. I just sent a text message to my first uh, disciple from uh, Azerbaijan, from a Jewish background, whose daughter lives in Tokyo, and I just sent the contact information to him to give to his daughter in Tokyo to see if uh, it'll work out for them to be in touch with her over there, get involved in a good church. So uh, you never know how things connect, you know. <laughs> uh, our scripture reading, just two verses to start with this morning from the book of Acts, two verses that uh, talk about similar themes that we're going to focus on. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And then Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's uh, pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you teach us from your word today and encourage us that we might be faithful disciples proclaiming the gospel uh, starting in Jerusalem and to all the nations and then back again. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago at a public meeting at a college campus at University of Pennsylvania, I asked an Orthodox Jewish professional anti-missionary. You've been hearing from missionaries. Do you know that there are anti-missionaries? whose purpose is to refute what we're doing. You find it particularly uh, in the, uh, in the, among the Orthodox Jewish, and also uh, there are Muslims who are uh, working toward uh, refuting the gospel and trying to keep Muslims from believing. Uh, but there are Jewish anti-missionaries, Jews for Judaism, and so on, or different organizations. And I asked him what he believed to be the overarching message of the Hebrew Bible. Well, you know, this fellow usually wasn't at a loss for words. He had an answer ready for anything an earnest young Christian uh, would ask. But this totally threw him, and he was silent for a moment, which was unusual. And he thought, and he said, well, we usually don't think of the Bible in those terms. That was his first attempt at an answer. And that's exactly the problem, and that's the problem why in the first century many of the Jewish teachers did not recognize that the time of redemption had come and that Jesus had come to fulfill the messianic hopes and to bring the good news to the world. They didn't understand that, and they missed the coming of the Messiah and the significance of the preaching of the gospel recorded in Acts. Now, I, I don't want to be too hard on the rabbis because... I think the apostles didn't really get it at first either, you know. Uh, they, they didn't quite understand what, what God was doing, the magnitude of what God was doing uh, through Jesus. And uh, Jesus had to explain to them what God was doing. Now, uh, there are profound insights that can be found in rabbinic writings, by the way. Uh, I... Judaism is not following uh, the Hebrew Bible, but uh, the rabbis have some insights. And one of the insights that I've seen in rabbinic Judaism uh, is the idea that the Messiah is waiting to restore the Garden of Eden. 
And there are several places where the idea of the tree of life and the Garden of Eden are connected with the final redemption, uh, with the Messianic redemption. And so they had some glimpse and some insight of the idea of a universal redemption, but, but usually they didn't quite, quite get it. There's a famous story in the rabbinic writings, the Talmud, that concerns uh, a heathen who went to one of the famous rabbis, Rabbi Shammai, and Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Rabbi Shammai and Hillel were rabbis who had different approaches to the law, and many of the things going on in the New Testament are debates between the school of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, and they're coming to Jesus to kind of get his answer, like, whose side are you on in this debate? So some of that's in the background there. And uh, the story goes that this heathen came to Rabbi Shammai, who was a very strict and tough guy, and he asked him what the essence of the Torah is, the law of Moses, and could he tell him the essence of the Torah while standing on one foot? See if I can do that. And uh, the rabbi got very upset and threw this guy out. Well, the same man went to Rabbi Hillel, who was known to be a much more uh, warm and generous character, and Rabbi Hillel said, do not do to others what is odious to yourself. That is the law and the prophets, the rest is commentary. Uh, by the way, that, does that sound at all familiar? Uh, similar to what Jesus said, but Jesus said something a little different. He said, do unto others, treat others as you would have them treat you, basically. Hillel had the negative, don't treat others the way you, you wouldn't want to be treated. So Jesus and Hillel had something in common there, but Jesus gave the, the flip side in a positive way of what Hillel said. And it says Hillel then took that heathen as a convert. So if I were asked to sum up the whole Bible while standing on one foot, my answer would be this, see if I can do it, blessing, curse, blessing, restored. That's essentially the whole Hebrew Bible. Uh, we use that word blessing, by the way, in a very cavalier manner, don't we? You say, oh, that was really a blessing, or this, uh, whatever it might be, that was a real blessing to me. Well, we use it and we throw it around, but blessing really is a very significant word, and I think we forget the profound significance of that word blessing by how we just kind of use it in a casual manner. When God created Adam and Eve, what did he do? It says he blessed them. He blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And you see, when it says God blessed them, that tells us that he created us to be in a certain relationship with him, in a right relationship with him. We're um, familiar with the blessing that I'm going to give at the end of the service from Numbers chapter 6. This is done in the synagogue, and it's used in Christian churches. But the idea is of God as the heavenly father looking at you and blessing you with his face smiling upon you, his face shining upon you, and you're the beloved child, and the father's looking at you as the beloved child. Everything's right, there's a close relationship. That's how we were created, that's what we were created for. Now of course, we sinned, and we came under the curse of God. 
the opposite of blessing is curse. They're related to each other. We're created in blessing. We fell under the curse, right? And then what happened? God called Abraham, and he said to Abraham that a blessing would come to all nations through him. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean just we'll have a blessed day. That's not what it means, that the blessing would come to all nations. It means that the overturning of the curse that came through sin and the restoration to a right relationship with God the Father, that's what would call, come to all nations through Abraham and through his seed, you see. He would be the channel through which blessing would come to all nations. You have to understand that promise of blessing through Abraham in the context of what came before in the Bible, the creation and blessing and the curse. And I think sometimes we isolate these things and don't see how it's all connected together. Blessing means coming back into a right relationship with the creator. And this is the center of the promises given to Abraham. And that's a promise that sets the theme for the whole Bible. The whole Bible really is connected with that blessing of Abraham coming to the nations and the restoration from the fall. Look at Galatians chapter 3. I just want to show you a few uh, verses in Galatians if you have your Bibles. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations, all the goyim, all, all, the, all the other foreign nations outside of Israel, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that's the gospel that God was telling Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the essence of the gospel. Look at verse 13 in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see? the relationship of the blessing and the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see the juxtaposition there? of the blessing of Abraham and the curse that came by sin and that curse taken upon Christ so that we could receive the blessing again. So what does this blessing really encompass? What's involved? Well, at creation, man was living peacefully in God's presence in, in perfect harmony with God in the Garden of Eden. All was right in their relationship. God ruled as a loving father over his son Adam who was created in God's own image. There was no death. There was harmony between Adam and Eve, between man and nature, and most importantly between man and God. And man was innocent. Man had a pure heart. He was naked and guiltless and unashamed. If you want to see a, a chart uh, of how this all works out, go to our uh, website, uh, chaim.org, and you'll see a, a big picture PDF that you can download that, that fleshes that out. Now, all that, all that we had under the blessing of right relationship with God and with each other and with nature and, and a pure heart and innocence and no shame, no guilt, all that was lost. And death came in with the curse of the fall. 
So then you see that covenant of blessing of Abraham must involve the restoration of those things that we lost in the fall. And this is where our, our, our rabbinic brothers uh, or friends, <laughs> not brothers, but our rabbinic friends get, get it wrong. They don't get that the blessing to Abraham and the whole concept of blessing had to do with the overturning of what we lost when we came under the curse, you see. And that's why the, the Messiah has to be a certain kind of Messiah. He has to come and restore all those things that were lost. That's God's whole purpose from the beginning, to restore the Abrahamic blessing. The Abrahamic blessing was to restore what we lost under the curse of the fall. And that restoration is understood as a right relationship with the Father, death removed, you could say, uh, and access to the tree of life again. That's what in the Old Testament they called having a circumcised heart. Several places, Moses said and Jeremiah said, don't just circumcise your flesh, circumcise your heart. We call it being born again. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's called having a circumcised heart. So in order to restore the full blessing, there needed to be a second Adam. Paul talks about this. He needed to come and fulfill the curse of the law by taking the punishment we deserve upon himself. I like to say there are only two ways that sin is paid for. Either you pay for it yourself or Jesus pays for it in your place. Those are the only two possibilities. Uh, take your pick. I'll, I'll take his payment for my sin. Thank you. So we needed a second Adam to come and take the curse on himself and faithfully obey the Father and bring us into a, a, a right relationship, a re-entrance into that right relationship with God the Father and uh, being able to partake of that tree of life again. And in the later prophets in the Hebrew Bible, you see that theme there of Eden restored, paradise regained. And when it talks about the coming of the Messiah in the Hebrew prophets, it begins to talk about this idea of a paradise lost and a paradise regained with his coming. So you see Edenic language uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Look for that if you read Isaiah and other of the latter prophets. And you see, all this idea of God's purpose of having a people restored to himself, restored to his image, restored to the blessing, and the nations being restored to that state of a right relationship as they had in the garden, uh, that is seen in the latter prophets. And the idea of being fruitful and multiplying you, you'll see, if you, if you have this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and look at it in the Hebrew Bible, you'll see Israel was fruitful and multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then it talks in Isaiah about being fruitful and multiplying and Israel coming out of Babylon and multiplying and being fruitful beyond it had, uh, what it had been before. And you see, this is really what's behind the missionary thrust of the Bible, of the New Covenant, in the book of Acts. It's that idea of being fruitful and multiplying, that curse being removed, the blessing restored, and then right after God pronounced that blessing in Genesis, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And in the book of Acts, Paul echoes that in the verses that we read in chapter 6 and chapter 12. The disciples had asked the risen Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And it seems at that point, not unlike the Pharisees, they, they really had failed to realize the nature and extent 
of the messianic redemption. They were still thinking of a Messiah who's going to come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and get rid of the Roman oppressor and restore the Davidic kingdom. And really, that was a Messiah that was much too small for God's purposes. God had a bigger Messiah in mind. And Jesus said to them, it's, it's enlightening and intriguing to see how he answered that specific question. Uh, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said this, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and at all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So... The background for taking the gospel to the whole world is that idea of being fruitful and multiplying. It starts with the commandment given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and then it works out, you see, in the gospel. We see that quoted in the book of Acts. Look at those verses again. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of those uh, of the priests became obedient to the faith in Acts 6 and 7. And then again in 1224, the word of God increased and multiplied. I think it's significant that Luke, in writing Acts, and, and Luke would have had the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. That's what Luke would have, had, would have used. We don't, we don't know if Luke was Jewish or, or Greek, uh, but he was possibly a, a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew who used the Greek Bible. We don't know. But he would have used the Greek version of Genesis. And in both of these passages in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 12, he uses the exact words found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible for being fruitful and multiplying. I don't think that's a coincidence that he used the identical language that's found in Genesis when he described the gospel going forth and increasing and multiplying. And Paul used the same two verbs in Colossians where he tells us the ultimate expression of this principle is found in the gospel, uh, that the gospel is being fruitful and multiplying uh, among the Christians there in the Colossae. And you can find that in Colossians 1 and uh, verse 6 and verse 10. The same language of being fruitful, increasing, and multiplying is found. I don't think that's a coincidence. And really what's involved is nothing less than the reestablishment of God's original purpose in creation. Now it's a redeemed creation that's in view. And the scope of this redemption is universal. It's going to restore what's lost in the fall. And when we come to the book of Acts, the issue of speaking uh, in tongues probably needs to be addressed. And I'm not going to get into a discussion of whether or not tongues are gifts for the church today. They aren't, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but the focus on that debate often obscures what was really going on in the apostolic phenomenon of tongues. If you remember at Babel, a haughty and rebellious mankind was divided, and their language was divided, and there was confusion among them. And at Acts, you see, uh, in Acts at Pentecost, the Jewish feast of uh, Pentecost was uh, in view. Uh, Pentecost was the beginning of the celebration of the harvest, the wheat uh, and barley festival uh, harvest coming in, and it was dedicated to the Lord. And you see, Babel was overturned 
in the book of Acts at Pentecost where you have thousands of Jews and Jewish proselytes who heard the gospel in their own language and they believed. This is the overturning of the division of people that we saw that came from the curse where people are divided from each other and from God and at Babel where the nations were divided their languages were confused. Acts is overturning that <clears throat> and so the speaking in tongues had to do with people from all languages and tribes coming together as one to worship the Lord. And as the gospel went forward uh, to an ever-expanding audience, we see the Samaritans uh, speaking uh, in other languages um, when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, the Samaritans were half-Jewish, half-Gentile people. Uh, the Jews didn't really accept them, and the Gentiles didn't either, so they were sort of caught, caught in between. And when they uh, received the message of the gospel, wonders ensued. And then in Joppa, <coughs> by the way, Joppa is a city right by Tel Aviv. And it's a city where Jonah tried to flee the call to go preach to Nineveh. And that's where Peter had the vision about the inclusion of the Gentiles and he was called to preach to them. I find that significant. That's in the same city where Jonah went the other way. God called Peter and he went and preached to the Gentiles instead of running the other way. And when Peter preached to the Roman centurion Cornelius, the tongues of Pentecost were repeated. God's kingdom was going forward, uniting Jew and Gentile, overturning the separation between man and God and the separation between people of different languages and backgrounds. Peter's report of the conversion of the house of Cornelius brought to the apostles' attention that to, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you see, in Acts, the gospel becomes the message to all nations, to all people, not just for the Jews, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And Rabbi Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul in some circles, was gloriously confronted by the Lord as he hotly pursued the followers of the Messiah in his anti-missionary enterprise. He was the original anti-missionary, was the Apostle Paul or Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. And God called him as a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Paul began to preach to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And soon the gospel was spreading to Asia Minor and to Greece and into Europe. And the apostles in Jerusalem were puzzled by this and they met together to wrestle with the issue. What do we do with all these Gentiles coming into the faith? Um, are we going to require them to be circumcised and keep kosher and, and become Jews? And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they came to recognize that not only <clears throat> were the Gentiles to be admitted to the Messianic community without first being circumcised, but their inclusion was the very thing that the prophets had envisioned. This was the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And you can see that in Acts chapter 15 at what Presbyterians like to call the first general assembly. <laughs> of the Presbyterian Church, right? <laughs> they had finally come to see that what was promised to Abraham about blessing coming to all nations was being fulfilled through the Messiah. One of my favorite psalms in Psalm 72, and you see this in that psalm. Uh, it says this, 
May the people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. You see, in Psalm 72, the Davidic king becomes the focus and the channel of the Abrahamic blessing where all nations will be blessed through the coming of this king. And so in the book of Acts, we begin to see a two-pronged mission given to the apostles. When uh, Paul was brought before King Agrippa to defend himself against charges that he opposed the law of Moses, he responded this way in Acts 26. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, saying nothing, but what Moses, the prophets of Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would reclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. By the way, anybody that tries to tell you that the gospel age and the gospel going to the nations was the great parenthesis unknown in the Hebrew Bible really has a problem with the Apostle Paul here. He says, I'm only proclaiming what the law and the prophets said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and die and the gospel would go to the Gentiles. This isn't the great parenthesis. This is God's purpose from all time, to bring the good news to the world through Christ. And it's Christ who's doing it, by the way, it says here. He would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. The apostles have come to realize the incredible implications of the messianic coming. It wasn't just to restore the kingdom to Israel. The restored Davidic kingdom to Israel was a worldwide kingdom that would become the greatest kingdom on all of, our, all of the earth. You know, sometimes we get discouraged uh, about the church not growing as fast or it might be difficult. <coughs> There's a video you can find on YouTube about the growth of uh, Christ's kingdom throughout the world, <coughs> starting <coughs> from the book of Acts and going forward. If you see that big view, that big picture of church history, you'll be encouraged. You'll be discouraged. It brought the fulfillment of the Messianic vision of Isaiah. <coughs> Isaiah 49, it says this, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see you and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. That's the vision of Isaiah, that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is going to come, you see. And he's not only going to restore the people of Israel, he's going to be a light for the nations of the whole world. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone for a new redeemed community gathered for, from all nations. You see, bringing both the Jews and the Gentiles to the good news, bringing them to know the Lord through the Messiah was God's plan from the beginning, it wasn't plan B, it was the only plan. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> we have many good 
faithful dispensational brothers and sisters, but I get really offended by their theology because it says the church and Christ's suffering and dying and rising again and the gospel being preached to the nations was plan B. And plan A would have been Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Plan A and the only plan has been the gospel and Christ proclaimed to the world. That is the restored Davidic kingdom. The good news would be preached starting at Jerusalem. Now Jesus never denied that there'd be a restoration of the Jews, by the way. When they said, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time to Israel? He didn't say, you guys have it all wrong. I'm done with the Jews, now I'm going to the rest of the world. That's not what he said. He said, you don't know the time that I'm going to do it. The apostles were partly correct in anticipating a restoration of the kingdom to the Jews. They just didn't understand how it was going to happen. And you see, today the kingdom of God is going forth in the world to both Jews and Gentiles. Um, it's the power of salvation, as God says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And just as the gospel went out from the Jewish apostles to the Gentile nations, so now Gentile believers, along with Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, are taking the good news to Jewish people. I have a pamphlet in the back that has on the cover uh, Calvin and Murray and Voss and Edwards and Hodge, and you can see quotations from all those people about the future restoration of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus and that this is promised. Gerhardus Voss, one of the greatest uh, teachers of biblical theology and understanding how the whole Bible fits together, said that I have three quotations from him. This is a universal teaching of the church. Uh, and that day it was understood that the Jews would be restored to the gospel, that this is a certain thing to happen. And you see, times of refreshing and restoration to the Jewish people is them coming back to the gospel. <clears throat> My professor of church history was Claire Davis, and Claire said, there's something about revival in the world and it's connected with revival among Jewish people. Whenever there's a revival and an interest in missions, there's also a revival of interest in Jewish missions. And by the way, there are Jewish Christians today involved taking the gospel <coughs> to Gentile Christians. Uh, the second volume of the book of Acts is still being written and there are Jews involved. The first man to bring the gospel <coughs> and translate the gospel into Mandarin Chinese was a Jewish Christian Anglican bishop. The man who went to Afghanistan and died in the process to, to um, make a dictionary of, of the language there to translate the Bible was a Jewish Christian. Um, there have been Jewish Christians involved in missions even, even today as well, not just for their own people, but to the world. God has given us a glorious purpose. That's what we're thinking about at this missions conference. And, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in the mundane and the parochial matters of life, the concerns of daily life, the daily grind, the constant scream for our attention that these things have. But we mustn't lose sight of the glorious purpose to which we've been called. And God has called us, and each one of us is part of this purpose, to bring the restoration of creation. We're called to be part of the restoration of creation. Religious Jews and mystical Jews have something called tikkun olam, that God has called the Jewish people to be part of rebuilding the world. Now, they misunderstand that 
concept. <laughs> but there's some truth to that, that God has called us to participate with him by preaching the gospel to be part of the restoration of creation. Do you understand that's who you are? You're the vanguard for the restoration of the creation that fell. <coughs> so our witness for the Lord, our prayers for the advancement of the kingdom, our service to bind up the wounds of the suffering and help the immigrants, as we've heard about uh, this morning, they're all part of something spectacular and wonderful that the prophets long to look into, Peter tells us. So I want to encourage all of us to recommit ourselves to that missionary endeavor here in central Arkansas and uh, to the foreign missions in Philadelphia <laughs> and in Japan. They're all connected, you see, because we're all part of what God is doing to restore the blessing, to overturn the curse of the fall, and to restore creation and to restore a people to his image and to himself. Let's recommit ourselves to God's service in our own neighborhoods and in the worldwide missionary endeavor and work in faith for the restoration of both Jews and Gentiles to the restoration of blessing that our king has won for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the privilege of being part of what you are doing. And what you are doing, Lord, is bigger than anything we can conceive of. It's nothing less than the overturning of sin and death and the fall of a recreation brought through Christ. We worship you for that. We thank you that you've made us part of it. You have done that in us, and you've given us the privilege of being part of that throughout the world. Help us to recommit ourselves to what you are doing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to uh, give you the blessing the way I do it every week at our little church plant, except I'm not going to do the Russian. I'm only going to do the Hebrew and the English. Uh, so receive the blessing of the Lord. God's face shining upon you. Yivrechcha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panav lecha v'yichunecha Yisah Adonai panav alecha v'yasem lecha Shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you and grant you peace.